Piero, Piero, Piero. Four, seven, one. Four, seven, one. Four, seven, one. Zero, zero, zero. Four, seven, one. Four, seven, one. Four, seven, one. from Blogs of War, where your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact, episode 118. I am your host, John Little. Uh, that uh, recording at the top of the show was a shortwave number station. Uh, Scott Turbin called me uh, last week, and we started talking about um, number stations. If you're not familiar, uh, they're mostly a relic of the Cold War, but they still exist today on some level. Uh, I think the Internet's taken over a lot of uh, of this, but uh, they're essentially ways to transmit uh coded messages to folks in the field and, and intelligence agencies and governments, uh, have, have used this method, uh, for a long time. And it's still, still relevant today to some extent. I mean, it has the advantage of, uh, not having a direct point to point connection between you and your asset. And so, um, uncovering folks can be difficult, but it can be done. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Scott, welcome back. Thank you. So, um, you and I are a little bit older. Um, it's you'd be hard pressed to find anybody under thirty, maybe that even knows what shortwave is. <laughs> much, much less uh, number, much less number stations, right? Yeah, I, you know, we we might be wrong. There might be more people. I, I mean, at least the the internet seems to have some of this stuff out there. You know, like YouTube, and I think it. I think people do run into it. But yeah, I think it's really kind of a older guy thing. I mean, I still have a, a shortwave big base station on my desk here. So. Yeah. Yeah. We, but we both, uh, grew up listening to shortwave shortwave, uh, was way more active. Um, and it was, you know, it was a vehicle for radio programs, propaganda, and, uh, and, you know, in very rare cases like this, like coded messages, you know, for you know, military government and, and espionage activity. Um, and you know, you got to remember that most of this was happening um, at a time of heightened global tension. It was a Cold War, so uh, this was quite active. And if you needed to get a message around the world, this was a um, you know, this was pre-internet. This was a great way to do it. And so, you know, if uh, if I had been a little bit older, and you know, I would have loved to have been able to like retire uh, in Western Europe in my fifties because you could have just you could have spent uh, countless hours uh, tracking these things down and listening to them. It was quite, quite, a, quite a bit busier. Yeah, they they kind of slowed down for a while. 
Um, but they're still out there. They're still broadcasting. Um, in fact, uh, we were talking about HM01 before we started recording, and that's still broadcasting. That's in um, Cuba. Um, and that one, well, I don't, I don't remember. Was Anna Belen Montez in the 80s or 90s, or I think it was the 90s, maybe? But HM01. Yeah, that's the station that I used to pick up um, on a regular basis. It's the easiest one for those in the yeah. United States to pick up, and it was it was pretty uh, for a long time. It was uh, you know it was pretty regular. You could you could you could find it with very little work, and I used to record that. Of course, being in the United States, it makes it a bit more difficult to capture some of these. Uh, you have to be in a good location with a good antenna. Um, yeah, and that's why you know I always regretted sort of. Whenever I fired up a shortwave, it's like, man, I really wish I lived somewhere else. You know, I mean, the United States is just not an ideal place for picking up uh, the rest of the world, unfortunately, without without significant investment. Well, there's um, there's still hope. You can still get like the digital uh, radio goggles. You can yeah. listen to shortwave that way. Or on the internet, I've found people who have taken their you know their base station and, and hooked up a a large antenna array and they just broadcast it live. You can tune the, the dial as well and, and listen to things. So it's, it's still out there. It's, it's cool to still try and, and play with. And yeah. if, if anybody out there wants to learn, just, just Google it up. Yeah. And look for software defined radio. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's really the coolest way to get and the easiest and by uh, a long shot, the easiest way to get involved in it now. And that allows you to pull up, um, just via the web, pull up um, uh, essentially, uh, you know, a virtual shortwave radio that's connected usually to a very expensive, uh, very capable antenna array somewhere else in the world. Uh, and so you can essentially fire that up and you have your own monitoring station. And that's really the way to do it now. It just, it's the only way that makes sense for most people, unless they're just hardcore into the actual like physical hardware. <laughs> yeah, well, I got I've got the base station. I got a Grundig uh, satellite 750, and I've got a, a large cable line out, you know, from the house to a tree. So I, I get I still get a pretty good amount of uh, of signal. And yeah. I'll, I try to you know do the QSL thing and see what stations I can hit, and then like send a an email or a physical mail saying, "Hey, I I heard your broadcast," and they'll they'll send you something. Yeah, the hardest part for most people now is, especially if you live in an urban area, it's going to be the antenna. Like if you're in an apartment building, you're in a steel and and concrete building. Um, if you don't have you know a place to string wire or whatever, I mean, it, you you can get by. But I'm I understand how being involved in radio, uh, I guess currently as a ham, and then you know previously monitoring for a long time. The difference between you know. Um, Using you know just an off-the-shelf basic shortwave radio, or even with a little wire, and one connected to like a true antenna is just—it's like uh, staggering, like the difference in quality and reach and and things that you have. Yeah, my father has all that stuff. Yeah, that's how I got into it. You know, again, for most people, uh, I'll have to link to this and in, in, in the show notes, but. Uh, with zero investment, you can go out and, and basically uh, take control of, of really, I mean, we're talking about, in some cases, multi-million dollar uh, radio setups um, and, and control those and monitor from the web. It's really kind of amazing stuff. I mean, it's everything's, yeah. uh, I'm going to sound old, everything's gone that way. I mean, e even a 
police scanners. You know, like there's no reason to buy a police scanner anymore. It's an app. Yeah, well, if you if you remember when uh, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing happened, yep. um, one of those those type of stations online was capturing the traffic from the police, and they they eventually had to go like tell them to shut down because it, the word was getting out. You know where they were looking and what was going on. So yeah, it can be a, a really good thing or kind of a bad thing at the same time. Uh, so back back to the number station stuff. There's been you, you brought an interesting case uh, to my attention, which uh, uh, you know that's what I want to talk about today because it it's still relevant in terms of of sort of the investigative techniques used to to track down the recipient of one of these in a very high profile case. Yeah, it kind of added some context to uh, to how they found Trigon. Really, I didn't, I wasn't aware of some of the details. Uh, so it was very interesting that the, the Latvian National Archive, you know, finally digitized all this stuff in this, this KGB uh, manual slash document that goes into how they, they went about looking for Trigon um, by trying to detect um, number station use. One of the things I'm always a little bit wary of, I, I mean, this is really appealing to me because the investigative technique they they describe is, on one hand, it's it's very basic, uh, the way they sort of tighten the circle here. Um, and we can maybe walk through sort of the steps they followed. Um, but, uh, it's also pretty audacious, right? Like even in a place like the Soviet union, where, uh, they had a tremendous amount of control in those days, it's still amazing to think that you can identify that a radio signal is being beamed into a portion of your territory. And then from there, walk that back down, you know, to an individual. Well, they, they had a, a, a lot more control over their environment, you know, as the, as the Soviet Union than, say, you would have today in America, right, to determine some of this stuff, how they, how they went about trying to detect who may have been using the, the number station. And, and in this case, it wasn't that they um, decrypted the, the number station. Um, they actually used methods to try to determine who was sending mail, making contacts with outsiders in particular um, at around the times of, of after a broadcast, right? So they had the control over the, the mail systems and, and then, and, you know, pretty much a surveillance state. So it was easy for them to do to try to narrow it down. Well, I don't want to say easy, all right, because... Hmm. You know, let's let's sort of walk walk through like the process. So, they observe this radio signal. They know that basically there's a certain percentage of their territory where this can be received. So, whoever is receiving it is in that. That's still a very large area, uh, essentially the western half of uh, Russia. And then they also observe patterns of ac- increased activity that made them think that um, the Western powers were were up to something. Uh, and that they were related to those signals. And then they started looking and they made the assumption that somebody's going to receive this signal and they're going to communicate by sending um, you know, some kind of coded message back via the mail system. And after a period of surveillance, they detected something that uh, was suspicious and eventually, they say, led them back to the person receiving the messages. Well, they, they knew kind of what to look for because they knew tradecraft right. on our part. So the, the hidden ink uh, attack, evidently, they knew about the, 
determined. And then the, I guess the encryption that they were using um, at the time for that, they, they decrypted. Um, and that's when they, when they got that, that information, they went right to that individual uh, as the target. And then they started surveilling him and they went about going, uh, you know, monitoring him and his wife and, and then knowing when uh, she was going to go away somewhere. I forget. I think they actually arranged it so she could go somewhere so that he would be out of the house. She would be out of the house because she was always home. She wasn't working. So they could go in and, and bug and put in the, the cameras and stuff. And yeah. Search. Yeah, once they had a suspect, it's a pretty standard counterintelligence investigation. But, I mean, again, with all, uh, even with the, the amount of control they had, um, it's still pretty amazing to think that you can you can use basic techniques, right, to tighten that circle down to one person. Uh, assuming that that, is, that story is accurate, there's always yeah. a possibility that it's not, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely KGB. This is... This was actually meant as a, uh, a working document for other uh, officers or groups within the KGB. Yeah, it seems so legitimate. This is, like a, this is how we did it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time they were doing this, they were also tightening their surveillance on would-be CIA actions. So, so they were trying to match them together, uh, which comes into play you know, at the end when they, they finally roll up uh, Trigon. So it's, it's interesting. Um it is Herculean. I will give you that. They, you know, to, to look at all that mail when it went down uh, to one person. It doesn't really say that they had more more than one person, though. They, they just kind of nailed it into, into him. Yeah, I mean, the logic makes of, of the investigation makes perfect sense, but there's a, you're still, you still end up with a huge amount of, quite frankly, luck involved uh, when it comes to scanning mail for potential clues, right? I mean, that's, I mean, we're talking yeah. about a slightly simpler time and slightly less volume and stuff, but I mean, it's still, uh, you know, I don't know how much mail was flowing to the United States uh, uh, or other other places uh, at that time, but um, still, I mean, um, at the end of the day, you got to have some luck on your side. Yeah. Well, I've got this There's a little paragraph here. It was on February 9th, 1977, a postal parcel coming from Moscow to the U.S., a suspicious letter was identified, which had signs which made its purpose likely being for espionage. So this letter had a date indicating it was sent on February 7th and was written in the English language from English tourist, quote-unquote, by using a physical chemical method on the blank side of the letter. A cipher of 353 uh, five-member groups was found. The experts concluded that the message was made by a person who knows Russian language, while the paper and techniques were created by U.S. intelligence. So the open text analysis showed that it was made before, before in the CIA station center. So they were even like looking at linguistics, like uh, stylometry kind of stuff too. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's super interesting. I, I I still have to think the number of people that were ever actually tracked down this way has to be uh, has to be fairly small. Now you know there's. There have been cases where they've been caught in other ways. For example, they've been, you know, suspected and 
Yeah, they're caught with a shortwave receiver, like specialized equipment um, uh, that that would have given them away, or you know, a one-time pad was discovered. Those kinds of things. Uh, identifying a radio signal and, and walking it back to an individual recipient is probably not something that happened with great frequency. I'd probably say this is like the one time. I can think of, you know, there would be other scenarios where it'd be a, a bit easier, especially if you're going into like much more remote remote areas and your list of suspects would stand out, uh, uh, those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, beaming into a country like uh, uh, the so beaming into the Soviet Union or Russia and, and doing it on that, that level is a whole different story than maybe tracking down uh, rebels or insurgents or whatever in like remote areas where it might be a little bit easier to isolate suspects. Um, this is an interesting case, though. And uh, I think that for those who don't really know what a number station is or how it works, um, they might want to do a little research around that before they just go into the, this article um, on numberstations.com. But the the whole idea of uh, using one time pads these are these are pretty unbreakable unless there's a a flaw or a break in the usage like like you said if somebody finds a one time pad uh, I remember one case uh, the Russians actually reused a one time pad and that's how it was broken um, <laughs> rule number one so, of one time you know, pads <laughs> yeah I know never reuse your one time pad so it's it's a pretty solid method and that's why i think it's still being used today um you know to some extent and uh there was some chatter back uh back a while ago uh everybody was saying yeah when you know the member stations it's dead it's dead you know they kind of decreased for a while but then they came back because everybody thought oh the internet is just going to be able to shovel all this data through the internet but as we've seen with the NSA and all the traffic that's gathered and all the, you know, surveillance that happens that way, uh, there have been cases where people have been caught. I mean, I, the in the illegals case that happened here in uh, 2010, in reading through the documentation from the FBI, they were using steganography on the Internet, um, but they still got caught because of sloppy trade clock. Yeah, I mean, the, the Internet, um, I mean, the, the advantages are obvious. Um and there are ways to mimic this uh, sort of with the internet, but the inter- it's also going to narrow your 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 pool of uh, potential recipients down. And also, uh, it's much easier um, if your 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 uh, the target of your message is suspected in any way is being monitored in any way. Uh, then it's going to be easier for investigators to sort of piece things together if they're doing this via the internet. But, you know, you can essentially do things like send tweets that are, uh, may appear like innocuous, uh, tweets, but may contain a coded message. And, you know, the recipient knows which accounts to look for or monitor. But again, like that all leaves a trail to some extent, um, where just receiving a radio signal does not. Right. Yeah, you can't really DF who's just listening, right? So as long as they're not sending, yeah. Uh, even in listening. the even in the Trigon case, right? Like they wouldn't have been able to find him if he was just listening. I mean, they're they're like really arcane ways where maybe you could have, but let's I mean, chances of that succeeding are very low. Um, but yeah. really, what they got him, what you know, they claim to have got him on is the communication back, right? Right. 
Like if that hadn't happened, yeah, the likelihood that they would have ever found him through that method is pretty much zero. And and that that communication, once they interceded, they they kind of knew what they were looking for because one of the messages that messages that he got after they black bagged his place and they went through everything and found his uh, his hiding hole. He had like a a uh, shelf that he made that he hid his equipment in and. They got the code book, they got everything, and these, you know, we're, we're now able to decrypt everything he was saying. And there was a message about a meet, and there would be like a drive by throwing something out of the car um, that he was to get. That was his drop. And they were, they were waiting. Um, and it turned out to be a, a woman and a man uh, who were then PNG uh, out, but they got Trigon, and uh, that was that, you know. Yeah, and that case uh, itself too is worth recommending people if you're not familiar with it. Um, it is it is like a classic uh, Cold War espionage case, right? I mean, it even ends in a very dramatic fashion. Yeah, yeah. Even with uh, him taking cyanide that he asked the CIA to give him, he pretty much demanded, really, and uh, they gave it to him in a in a pen, I believe. Yeah, he and, bit down uh, on the pen. And yep. uh, he was done. Life. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, on the the internet, the, the idea of a like a tweet version of a number station, I kind of uh, one year for DefCon, I decided to do one, but it's it was just a page in the darknet that uh, I generated myself. I generated the the onion address myself, right. so it's not listed anywhere. And you had to you had to be able to get another code in order to find it, and it only. It only was up online at particular times, kind of like a numbers station. Um, nobody actually found it and nobody got the prize. But it kind of proved the point that you could do it that way. It's almost an endless list of possibilities. Um, it's amazing what people can do uh, if you get the right amount of uh, a big enough crowd together uh, and they focus on, on breaking something. I've seen some pretty amazing things happen. Yeah. It can be relatively simple too, as long as it really comes down to um, the recipient of the of the message. Um, you know, understanding where to find it. That's easy enough to arrange. Even the even the uh, the illegal case, there is talk about radiograms. Evidently, they were sending um, rapid burst transmissions. Yeah, they sent those as quickly as possible, so that uh, partly to minimize the uh, possibility of detection. And, uh, you know, a larger volume in a, in a shorter span of time, data-wise. Um, and so they, they were doing that. They were, but they were also using technologies like the, uh, the Bluetooth, um, connection between, uh, Anna Chapman and her handlers. They were like out on the street and she was in a coffee shop and they were supposed to connect by Bluetooth to the laptop and transfer files. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. This Bluetooth range isn't that great. Um, but she got caught because one of the things she got caught, uh, doing was she gave up the laptop because it wasn't working right to, uh, <laughs> to an FBI undercover. So Geek squad. The technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they, they actually, uh, they sent one of the, one of the guys to one of the uh, shops in New York to get laptops, which he then flew to, to the center in Moscow and they did stuff to them and then he flew back with them. But even even after all of that, the the actual assets couldn't work the technology properly, and 
they even had like a 27 character password when the when the FSG went in to one of the houses of one of the illegals. They found all this stuff, and it was this huge password that was written out because they couldn't they couldn't memorize it. That's for sure. Um, yeah, the technology. Wasn't for yeah, and that highlights a big problem with the tech, right? And this is this is not something that just folks like this would have a problem with. I mean, it's really everyone. Uh, it, you know, there are so many cool technologies when, and possibilities when it comes to encrypted and 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 encrypted communications with the internet and, and the technology, mobile technology that we have, and everything else. But um, it's also incredibly susceptible to to failure and and lack of awareness or competence uh, you know by the end user can have disastrous consequences with all of this right like there there's not there's no such thing really as just a, a simple tool that makes you invulnerable to detection there's so many other things you could do and mistakes you could make when you're using all of this stuff that could expose you even if the uh, encryption tool itself works or the the protocol itself works right mm-hmm. yeah for these these, these radio broadcasts got all like cryptic and strange. I mean, I remember it's like early eighties <laughs> dating myself sort of, but I remember picking up um, another station on the short way um, by myself. I just sort of was like, what the hell is this? That's how it really started yeah. for me. And so there's these weird little interludes of music and a series of numbers. So people kind of you know got interested in that. Um, and in fact, if you are listening to this and you're interested, you can go to uh, the Internet, Internet Archive, archive.org, and look up the CONET project, E-O-N-E-T. And that has a huge amount of recordings from people all over the world of these different number stations. And they're just sort of creepy and fun, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. Um, but all of this is, you know, for years, the, the government's, refused to admit that these things existed, right? Um, I think until, was it the UK that admitted a Lincolnshire poacher? Yeah, um, you know, I almost played but, that at the top of the show. It's such a distinctive uh, uh, broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, I, I wholeheartedly tell you to go down the rabbit hole, listen to these things. It's really kind of cool. It makes you wonder, you know, what are these messages and how many assets around the globe, you know, these things are sending messages to, even even today. Um, did you, have you ever heard the one there? It's uh, Yosemite Sam. Uh, I've never heard it. It's supposedly, I think, uh, out of the United States. Um, and it's, uh, I'm going to get you varmint. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, even we were doing it, too, obviously. But oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. It's fun trying to tune them in. So, yeah, I mean, I've listened to so many of them, and they sort of blur together. And I haven't, I haven't done any active monitoring in uh, in years. I just, I don't have one thing. You need to go find randomly find a number station, and right these days is time. Uh, uh, <laughs> Thirty years ago, that was um, it was a lot easier to do. Like you know, like you said, they're still out there, but the frequency of these has has dropped down. Now there are some some more like consistent broadcasts that can be tracked back to, you know, I know like in the United States, like a lot of military channels, right. Where they're regularly sending out coded messages. Uh, you know, like the air force has a high frequency network and they, they're, they're broadcasting on a fairly routine basis. It's not too hard to find those. 
they're they're sort of yeah, the esen- essentially the yeah sort of they're essentially the same thing in many ways. Uh, but you know yeah. the pure like number station broadcasts to uh, intelligence assets in the field uh, those are harder to find than than they used to be. Yeah. Well, you know, look, if it's harder to find, it makes the, the finding of it. If you actually do it, all the better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the one the one upside now is with software defined radio and the fact that you can you can pull this up on the web and you can very quickly operate across a lot of bands with what would otherwise cost you you know uh, require hardware worth um, significant expense uh, and that you can do it so quickly um, and that you can the nice thing about software defined radio is you you can see the entire a visual representation of the entire radio spectrum so you can see when a, a signal pops up and spikes and you can just click on it with your mouse and listen to it. It's not quite that simple, but that's the basic premise. Um, uh, and you know, that of course gives you a, a massive, uh, advantage when you're trying to find these things. Yeah. And you can record it and play it back. All kinds of cool stuff. I have a, I have a couple of FDR, um, dongles. Yeah. You, you can get these things on Amazon for like less than 30 bucks. It can be a little bit of a bear trying to get them to work on Linux, you know, Windows. If you have Windows, easy enough. The majority of of our audience will not have that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I like to go the exotic route. Yeah. I tried it on Ubuntu, and I, I got it working, but it took, it took too long to get it working. It's a lot of head banging. But uh, it was just you know you got to compile a bunch of stuff and get the dependency. Yeah, all the all the good radio software is basically Windows. Um, a lot of it's uh, sort of community developed and in, in the ham community and stuff like that. And almost all the good stuff is based in Windows. But again, you know, like to go do this stuff via the web um, doesn't matter what platform you're on. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was just gonna say, hopefully we've kind of you know gotten some people maybe interested in this stuff and. You know, they can go down the rabbit hole. Um, I still go back to it. I still boot up the radio and the and the FDR and, and look for things. So. Yeah, no, I I do too. It's just not as often as I used to, but occasionally I'll fire one up and see what's going on. And I mean, with shortwave, you never know. Like the potential for finding something weird is always there, whether it's a number station or. Yeah, some underground broadcast or pirate radio or, or weird government activity from some corner of the world. Um, it's still an interesting place. Yeah, there's a lot more millenarian kind of Christian stuff, too, oh. out there on the shortwave. Yeah, there is oh, some yeah. crazy religious stuff on shortwave. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. There's one guy, he, he sounds like he's 9 million years old, and he's just, out of his mind. Yeah. I have to stop and listen every once in a while just for like, oh my God, I think the world's crazy, but this guy's a real nutbag. No, yeah, they. it's a whole different world. Like, uh, that, yeah, that's a that's a show on its own right there. Um, like weird cults and uh, religious sects and things like that uh, um, really have made uh, good use of shortwave. Yeah, you, I've, I've heard the weirdest things on there, so. I'll send you a couple of clips I got off of uh, of that millenarian guy. Uh, I'll send you his website. All right, sounds good. Well, I'll include some of these links in the show notes uh, for folks, so maybe we can get you started on uh, 
at least point you toward the rabbit hole, and uh, uh, hopefully folks will go explore. We'll talk soon. Scott? All right. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Covert Contact Podcast from blogsofwar.com. You can reach John at covertcontact at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.